0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In our Inside the Sports Car Paddock weekly feature, we're kicking off as usual with our dear friend Jeff Brown, Supreme Race Engineer for the Core Autosport IMSA DPI team. And as we've been doing of late now, and I believe is our 20th episode, we've been doing a bit of a technical, an engineering preview of each upcoming IMSA round. Jeff obviously is hoping that his Core Autosport Sport Nissan Onroke DPI driven by his son, team motor John Bennett, and also Romain Dumas have a very, very happy weekend upcoming here in Watkins Glen. Once we're done with that, we move into another acronym explanation, and that is CFD, Computational Fluid Dynamics, a big part of Jeff's world, many race engineers' world. What is it? What does it do? Why do you use it? How is it integrated into vehicle setup choices in what you do with a car, aerodynamically. Uh, lots of cool stuff that we get into here with Jeff. Then we move to a series of interviews captured by our good friend, my weekend Sports Cars co-host, Graham Goodwin, last weekend at the Nürburgring, uh, getting ready for the 24 hours of the ring. Bit of a mix of familiar names and possibly some you'll be hearing from for the first time on the show. Start off with our pal, Jörg Bergmeister, brand new am. Champion for the season, the uh, FIA WEC Super Season Champ, and also winner of the GTE M class. Speaking with Graham about the post-race dramas at Le Mans, and also his own driving future. Then we move to another Porsche friend, Kevin Estre, who's looking at not only the uh, the fun and pretty amazing 24-hour-long GTE Pro battle that took place uh, in France here just a little while ago, but also the dramas en route to clinching his portion of the FIAWC Championship in the pro category with Porsche. Then move on to Josh Burden, talking about leading up to doing his very first, his rookie, Nürburgring 24 appearance with a KCMG Nissan GTR squad. Then with the last two interviews, we move on to Michael Lyons, someone who is known more for doing a lot of historic Group C and Formula One racing, uh, talking about why he would rather be at the ring, competing in the T3 class. So a bit of an interesting perspective again I enjoy hearing from someone who is not maybe one of the regular pros that we bring to you on Inside the Sports Car Paddock. So really happy that we have Michael here. Then we close with someone you may know their name. That is Stefan Wendell, the head of Mercedes-AMG's Customer Sport Program on the launch of their brand-new 2020 AMG GT3. So that is our package for this week on Inside the Sports Car Paddock, all brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. And if you have not had a chance, please check out our brand new Marshall Pruitt podcast.com site where we have all the numbers up to 600 now, 600 episodes. We've also just recently crossed the 3 million download threshold. So Marshall Pruitt podcast.com for everything we have ever published, including all now 20 episodes of inside the sports car paddock. Jeff Brown, we are back for yet another episode of inside the sports car paddock. I think this is number 20. Uh, you're getting ready to go to one of North America's most beloved road courses for the six hours of the Glen. And as we've been doing of late, we've been opening the show when we have an IMSA race next on the calendar by doing an engineering preview. And so this is an event where you have done quite well at times over the years, heading there now with your Nissan Enroque DPI. Where should we start? on previewing the technical and maybe the strategy side of six hours in upstate New York.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, um, I guess the place to start is first of all, it's beautiful up there. Lots of fans. Everybody loves going there. Natural train, of course, old school kind of track. Um, there's not very much that you, that there is to not like about going to Watkins Glen from a, from a fun standpoint. And that, And that translates right to the setup stuff and what the drivers love. I mean, the track is unbelievably fast. Um, I think you're going to see the DPIs qualify at an average speed of over 135 miles an hour. Um, It's super, super (laughs) fast.
0: I mean, with the new Michelins in particular, we already have a track that's high grip with the recent repave. Then you throw Michelins on there and we kind of get into cartoonish performance
1: exactly i mean there are some 50 mile an hour corners 55 mile an hour a corner yet average 135 it's it's super high down drivers love it it's super fast super grippy the highest grip track we go to you know we've done our previews of races before we talked about mid ohio like no grip mid ohio just super slippery can't get grip into the track we talked about sebring massively bumpy uh long beach no grip detroit bumpy and medium grip Uh, the cool thing about IMSA racing is there is it's not consistent it's a new challenge every weekend so here we come to a super smooth super fast super high grip track and the setup is probably the farthest from any setup we run on any other track all year Um, and so it's, it makes it a lot of fun. It makes it, um, it makes it tricky in a different way because now you're managing, um, fuel mileage, fuel mileage, because it's such a high speed track, the burn rate of fuel is tremendous. I mean, you're going to see DPI cars pitting at 33 minutes on a stint, 34 minutes maybe in that range. We're not going to go 40 minutes on a on a tank of fuel, and so a lot of pit stops. With the question of do you double stint tires, the Michelin's could probably go two stints because, again, because of the high grip, you're not sliding the tire, and sliding tires is what degrades tires. So you're gripped into the racetrack. Kind of, I use that example of Velcro. You know, you're 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 kind of stuck into the racetrack. The tire is not sliding. So you're not really wearing the tire that much because it's not cheese gratering across the surface. It's gripped into the surface. So tires can last long. Double stints might be a possibility. Um, and short fuel stints, 32, 33, 34 minutes in that range, changes the strategy quite a bit. Um, you know, and then talking about strategy, it's a six hour race, which is a oddball. I I know that WC races are normally six hours. But sure. For us, it's an you know, it's an oddball. It's not short, it's not long, it's kind of that in-between. So you actually have the option of of running two or three drivers. Um some teams will use just two drivers. Uh, I, I think uh, the current entry list I see shows the, the Penske cars uh using the Acura using two drivers. Most other teams will use three. Um we'll we will have uh, Romad Dumas joining us as our third driver. And then how you play those drivers in? Do you try to triple stint those guys? Triple stint again is an hour and a half, but uh you know, doubles, do you double and then do more driver changes? Because that could cost you some time, or do you triple guys? Um do you have your third driver just do a middle stint or start the race? So I think. People who watch the race either live or on t v should kind of look at that kind of strategy thing with driver rotation is going to be important tires watch who double stints tires and who doesn't um, We have fourteen sets of tires this weekend to use for the whole weekend that's practice qualifying in the race should be enough, but it'll be interesting to see how people use their tires um, you know, strategy wise so it's gonna be. Unlike any other race, and uh, it'll come down to, you know, it could come down to last year. Last year, it was all decided basically on the last pit stop in the last stint of the the race, and uh, it was pretty exciting.
0: Definitely one of the highlights of the year for IMSA. You mentioned the exciting part. I don't know if this is going to excite folks, but it excites me because this is something that I have tried to learn as much about and be stuck into from the moment i first heard about it which is our primary topic of this episode and that is computational fluid dynamics c f d huh so last week we spoke about sim and simulation we have i don't think we've done anything on finite element analysis so i'm sure that'll be a future thing Uh, we've spoken on many software-related performance tools that get used in motor racing, but CFD is one that was once spoken about almost constantly. We hear about it less, I think, these days. Not because it's less important, though, just because it's maybe not as new. It's just more of a known and familiar and expected tool. For those who don't know what the heck CFD happens to be, Mr. Brown, how should we explain... What it is and what it's meant to do
1: yeah it's it, it, it's pretty the explanation is pretty easy i think so c f d is nothing more than a wind tunnel in a computer, and I think most people know what a wind tunnel is for those that need to refresher it's so it's a, a it's a
0: it's a desktop with a very powerful cooling fan, and you put a, a little fan. you put a little hot wheel in there right right. No, I might be screwing this up for you. I apologize. Not quite
1: exactly like that. <laughs> what uh, you know? What a normal wind tunnel does. What we used to do in the old days, and it's still used to for to, to great effect. But it's a different tool. Um, wind tunnel. You put the race car in a you know in a tunnel. You blow air over it, and you have all sorts of sensors in the wind tunnel that measure the drag and the downforce of the car. And then you can make changes to your car aerodynamically, wings and and radiators and and splitters and body shapes and tabs and, and measure what the effect is. And what you're looking for in the wind tunnel is oftentimes the most efficient car, the one that makes the most downforce, but the least drag. And that's usually the fastest car on the racetrack. So that's real expensive. You have to take your car out of service or have a spare one. You have to go to the wind tunnel. You have to send a lot of crew. You have to build all these spare parts that you want to try. It's very expensive to run these wind tunnels. They consume a lot of power and they're big, expensive facilities to rent. Can be three, four, five thousand dollars an hour, depending on what uh, where you go. And so to get that information is very difficult. So. Similar to the simulation we talked about last week, where we can simulate the car in a computer and not have to go to a track and go to all that expense. CFD basically does what a wind tunnel does, but in a computer. So what you do is you model your car in a computer rendering, basically. And if you're designing a car, you have the 3D CAD files of the design very very detailed down to the you know thousandths of an inch dimensions of your of your body shape of your car
0: and that's perfect Jeff if you can communicate with a if say it's a production-based vehicle might be a little bit harder you know name the brand Audi etc etc might not be willing to hand you the full CAD files of the R8 road car that they've converted into gt3 spec or even the gt3 version of that it is indeed again possibly some very proprietary things if it's a bespoke race car like the uh, lige based nissan onroke dpi that you have or an indy car with a spec chassis there the delar dw12 etc might be a little bit easier to get the dead accurate cad files to then import into your CFd program but if you can't make that happen there's some pretty cool technology you can use and actually roll your race car into a scanning environment that I think folks would love to hear about too
1: yeah exactly Marshall it's it's uh, as you said oftentimes you don't get those files or uh, also what happens is a lot of times the the original design gets changed and it's just you know, here's your new car. And so for a team um, that gets a car and wants to have this information, as you said, they're scanning tools where they either use a digital ferro arm type of tool where you touch different points on the car. And this tool measures those points in 3D space. And basically, you're reverse engineering the CAD files. You touch lots of points and you'll see on the computer screen, it basically drawing the shape uh, and the surfaces that you're touching. There's now also some laser type um, optical scanning tools that do the same thing, even with higher detail, because it can measure inside of ducts and in and very small surface changes that are very time consuming to to do with your point touching tool so you can scan a car pretty quickly and you can get some very high resolution files that you can then import into the cfd program and so you have a model of the car then once you have that model of the car in the program you, we need to figure out how the air flows over this car. So, what the CFD software does is it—the best way to think of it—it's it's very complex, but the way I think of it is there's molecules of air flowing that are going to hit the car, and what it does is it tracks through physics each molecule of air. So, a molecule of air hits the front. Let's say it's an Indy car. Oh, let's say it's our car. Hits the splitter of our car. And depending on where it hits, it's going to be forced either below the splitter or above the splitter. Then another molecule of air right behind it hits the splitter. And it's going to bounce off the one that hit first and ricochet in some direction. And then it might hit a little further back, a piece of bodywork. And it's going to ricochet into another molecule of air. So picture millions of molecules of air represented in the computer. And each one of them has a mathematical formula applied to it. And it's basically figuring out the physics of that molecule while it hits other molecules of air that have ricocheted off of parts of the car, suspension, wishbones, tires, uh, whatever. And it follows the track of Every one of those molecules of air from the front of the car to the rear of the car. And each time it hits a piece of bodywork or another molecule of air, there's a force applied in some direction. And the CFD program calculates that force for each molecule of air as it goes along and what the direction of that is, adds all those millions of molecules of air forces together and computes the total downforce on the car and the total drag on the car. It's an amazing amount of computer power it takes to do that. You can imagine how much computer power it takes. And so a lot of CFD computers are game computers. There'll be 20, 30 core computers all hooked together that are doing this computational fluid dynamics so it's the dynamics of the fluid in this case our fluid is air and it's computing the forces on each molecule and it can take you know a run on a on a sports prototype like ours and with 30 40 computers all doing the math can take four five six hours to come up with an answer and then you have to make it change to your model, like change the wing angle, and that's another four hours of running to get an answer. But it's a lot cheaper than and more accurate than going to the track to try to measure it, and it's cheaper than trying to go to a wind tunnel to measure it um, because you don't need the car and the equipment and everything else. So it's a pretty effective way of uh, of getting the answers. And then to circle right back to what we talked about last week, that data that you get from the CFd is input into our simulation to accurately represent the aerodynamic characteristics of the car in the sim model
0: so when we look at that, not only the sim I mean we have this interesting chain that we can build upon, so we have in theory whether it's CAD files or the uh, uh, the deep live scan of the vehicle that is then inputted into uh, your CFD software. Many tests are run. You then come up with you know, what you would hope would be very solid, very, very solid representation uh, of what does what, what changes uh, influence this or that in certain ways, bolt on this shutter, close this, turn this wing up, add this uh, gurney flap, etc., ride height, uh, changes and whatnot, yaw. I mean, there's so many things uh, you can you can play with. You then have a lot of info that can get outputted and then inputted into simulation, as you mentioned. You also then, uh, from information coming out of CFD, you also have what's generally known as an arrow book. Maybe we should close on that, knowing that. When you're sitting on the timing stand this weekend at Watkins Glen, you're not going to have a CFD program open uh, farting around going, hmm, I wonder if we change the COP by point zero two, whatever, then we're going to get the drag and lift and whatever change. No, that's not what you're doing, but for sure, based on the work you or maybe your manufacturer has done to map the car aerodynamically through CFD, probably also... Uh, Wind tunnel as well, do a lot of correlation to make sure numbers are correct on both. You then have the ability while sitting on the timing stand to look at your arrow options to consider driven by this data uh, coming out of CFD uh, to know that if you do want to open up a shutter here or you want to change the balance of the car this way or that way, you really don't have to guess.
1: And that's you're exactly right, and that's the beauty of CFD or a wind tunnel test is we we produce these aero maps that go in the the aerodynamic book, and sometimes you get those from the manufacturer. Um, if it's a a more if it's a commercially available car, I'm sure um, Delara provides some basic aero maps for their IndyCar car. Um, we certainly get them from Ligier, Orca does the same, I know. And and what that gives us is we're it, it gives us some of the basic changes that we can make and it gives us the drag and down force um effect of those changes. And people may have heard the term L over D, which is the lift over the drag lift divided by drag well in our case lift is a negative number we're concerned about downforce but the L over D comes from the airplane world where they they want lift we want the opposite so we're looking for good L over D numbers in other words good lift in our case downforce for very low drag so if we we can look in our arrow book let's say i need more rear downforce because the car's oversteering into the high-speed corners, and I want to add rear downforce. What I don't want to do is add that real draggy and go slower on the straightaways. So I can look in my arrow book that comes from the CF, all of our CFD runs, and I can decide whether I want to, let's say, in, in the case of our car, I can change the main plane angle of the wing, the actual main wing plane, I can change that angle, Or I can change the flap angle, the second little wing that's on top of the main plane. I can change either one of those. So if I want to add downforce to stabilize the rear of the car, I'll look in my arrow map and see how much a one-degree change of the main plane gives me for downforce. And let's say it gives me 50 pounds of downforce. Great. Then I'll look at the flap. And I'll pick how much angle I have to do to make 50 pounds of downforce, an equal one. Then I'll look at the drag that each one of those produces, and I'll pick the change that gives me the least amount of drag for that 50 pounds of downforce, because that's the best solution. Without CFD, you wouldn't know that. And you might pick a draggier solution. It still may balance the car, and the driver may love it. Hey, yeah, the car's really balanced now, I love it, but you may have picked something that is more drag than another option. And you would never know that without the CFD work or a wind tunnel test and those arrow maps that are produced through through that work.
0: Jeff Brown, making us smarter with every episode. (laughs) Thank you as always, my friend. Uh, Let's close on this. So we had the... Extreme speed motorsports program shut down at the end of the year. Uh, the core team owned, by, owned and driven by John Bennett has picked up these Nissan on DPIs. Y'all have shown some flashes of potential this year. What are your thoughts just team-wise? And I, this isn't technical or anything else. I'm just curious. What are your thoughts coming into Watkins, knowing we're going to have John, your son Colin, and also Roma Dumas, you think you guys can uh, hunt for a podium?
1: I Yes. I mean, this is this is kind of the, you know, let's put it this way. we Everybody at CORE wouldn't mind kind of a parallel last half of the season like we had last year. Um, this was the race where we kind of started to figure out our, our orica from last year and you know, had a pretty quick car, quickest in one of the practice sessions. Got the pole last year um, with our Orica, and finished second in that race, and then and then won the next two. So, you know, we'd be super happy with a a repeat. Uh, I'll actually, we'd like to win the next three. We, we're pretty greedy here, but uh, who knows? It's I, I, we had a really good test at Watkins Glen um, a month ago or so, and so. I think you know we're encouraged let's put it that way it's the kind of tracks that our team likes our drivers like um and so um yeah I think anything anything less than a podium would be a disappointment but we probably say that every weekend so um but we're coming into the into the tracks that we really like and the tracks that we uh, did well at last year so everyone everyone on the team's pretty encouraged it's going to be tough I think you're going to see the speeds I wouldn't be surprised to see the pole go two seconds faster than last year than what Colin ran last year for pole Um, with the increased performance of the DPIs that they've given uh, this year basic increase in power uh, this year and then the Michelin tire I think think you're going to see an incredibly fast fast race and so we kind of like those kind of tracks and races at core
0: Amen to that well Look forward to speaking next week when we will know how things went and we'll have another topic to discuss. As always, dear listeners, please send in your thoughts on what you would like Jeff and I to discuss here on Inside the Sports Car Paddock among the technical engineering strategy, electronics, whatever. If there are things that pique your interest, let us know and we'll sit here and have a little gab fest and hopefully entertain you. Jeff, thanks as always, my friend, for making some time.
1: Sounds great, Marshall. We'll uh, talk to you when I'm on the road between Watkins Glen and going straight to Mossport. Two two in a row for us, so it'll be fun. We'll uh, do a little recap on Watkins Glen and uh, a preview of Mossport. Looking forward to it.
2: Beautifully sunny morning at the Nürburgring and with newly crowned WC champion Jörg Bergmeister and also Le Mans winner, Jörg, let's, let's deal with the championship first before we get into the events of... Uh, last weekend second 24-hour race on the trot you're here with Falcon a team with you know an iconic look last week it was all very different Um, clinching a WC title and the first attempt for project one just take us through that season well
3: (laughs) it's been a a lot of work I have to say Um, obviously it's been a project that started before the first race um, having them come from Carrera Cup and Super Cup and uh, going into WC which is something completely different from sprint racing to endurance racing um, but the goal was always there to be competitive uh, in the first year already um, definitely from my side and also Richard Seven who is a technical director um, so from that side we just kept pushing the first two races were somewhat difficult um, some learning pain I'd say um, but from there on it started really gluing together and, and the team got better and better and still is and I would say from a team perspective the last race at Le Mans was really really flawless uh, also from my co-drivers no mistakes consistency was there uh, was very happy and proud of it
2: I quite right to there was a bit of a I We put this gently Advantage gained with a problem for Dempsey Protocol. That doesn't get in the way of the fact, at the end of the day, the rules say you've got the points at the top of the uh, the board. That would have happened with or without what happened post race. So you're already champions um, without what happened at the, the end of that race. Again, we'll come to that in a moment. Talk to us a little bit about the team, the most successful one mate Porsche racing team in history. This was their Project 25 when I went to 26, well, 26 years for Project 1. And they've already told us they're going to be back with a new effort next year, two cars from WC. We're going to see you back.
3: Oh, uh, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Not 100% sure yet, but um, I think if I continue in WC, we we'll for sure will be with, with Project One, but uh, I haven't made my final decision yet. Okay. <laughs> um, but at the moment, I think the chances are, are pretty high that I, I come back for another year. Um, no, the, the team, as you said, uh, they have a lot of experience and in, in the Porsche world, uh, Carrera Cup, Super Cup, uh, been super successful there over the years, won uh, a lot of championships. But then coming to, to something so different in a dual racing and going in there at the top level with the WEC is, uh, is a hard task. Um, but I think the entire team did a great job as I said we had some learning pains but um, overall I think one, no one could be happier with the, with the result of the entire season and I think they surprised themselves a bit
2: Let's talk a little bit about the 911 RSR the, uh, the post race result means unbeaten in GTM at the Mans now this car You've driven everything over the last two decades for Porsche <laughs> uh, in racing and in testing and in development. Tell us a little bit about your impression of this extraordinary GTE car. Uh,
3: it's just a, a great car. It's really, really fun to drive. Obviously, um, with the mid-engine concept, we uh, had a, all the aerodynamicists had a lot more freedom uh, on the diffuser design, and that really makes a big difference, especially in the high-speed corners. Even on the low downfall setting in Le Mans, it's, it's bloody quick through the Porsche mm. corners and it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> big smile on your yes. face.
2: Let's talk about the end of the race. And it's always a tricky one whether or not you're the winner or the loser in a decision like that. Before we get to that, let's talk about that battle towards the end of the race. So There's quite a big gap built up by the Fortune C principally through the safety cars. And then it all started to go wrong for them. Uh, called into the pits and then a second call into the pits with a penalty for Ben Keating. Ben didn't make it easy, though, for you, did he?
3: No, he was uh, very quick, I have to say. The Ford, in general, uh, speed-wise, they were quicker than us, um, no doubt about it. Um, I mean, if you look at the lap times that Ben was uh, able to do, I think his quickest was a 55.9. For a bronze driver, is crazy quick. (laughs) So I think it showed that car had maybe a bit of an edge on us. Um, so when I, when I saw that Jerome got in, uh, I pretty much knew right away that we didn't, didn't really hit a shot. Um, I then also started conserving fuel. Um, but as the team told me, then uh, they went the safe way. We went for another splash probably would have been okay on, on the fuel load to, to finish the race but uh, as we knew we still going to be second we went the safe route and, and came in and splashed
2: We've seen obviously the decisions that were made post-race uh, Ben has been very classy in terms of his response to it You take the win You don't know get to stand on the top of the podium that's, that's not something you get, you get to do but your impressions basically of the events as they came through you.
3: I mean Obviously, it's a, a sad situation for the guys that were on the stop, top step of the podium. But nevertheless, rules are there. Um, and I think on that side, it's good that uh, the FIA um, is so strict about it. And everybody knows, as soon as you, you're you over the limit, you're out. And even if it's only a little bit, uh,
2: rules are rules. Have you heard from the guys since
3: the I talked to Jerome and, uh, yeah, I mean, he's definitely not happy, but... Um, He's a racer and he will keep going and pushing again next year.
2: There is that moment. It's quite a sad moment for one set and I guess it's kind of mixed moment for the others when those trophies have to be handed over. I
3: don't know yet. I just got an email that I have to send my back to the ACO, so I don't know what, what's going to happen, so we'll see.
2: But at some point you're expecting something nice in the mail. I hope so. they <laughs> have mentioned you don't really yet know what, uh, what's in store for you. You've made your racing living very much in the U.S. of late and um, you know, with Patrick in particular formed a really good partnership with Park Place. The car this year was very much a partnership in the WC with uh, Project 1 Park Place. Is that the decision that's going to be made? Um, or is this more about your decision on where you're to be racing?
3: Yeah, oh. I think it's more more that uh, than anything else. Or what I want to do in my future <laughs> if I'm going to keep racing, um, but at the moment I, I feel more like I'm going to do another year. So and You've got That's a bit of time to make that decision. Say again? You've got a bit of time to make that decision. Exactly, yeah. Porsche is very patient. They t- told me I have time to, to make that call and uh, they support either way.
2: You're, I hope we see you racing somewhere for many, many years <laughs> to come. If this is the end, I hope it isn't. What a way to go out winning in a World Championship <laughs> we we'll see. At the moment, I think uh, I
3: have a tendency to continue. <laughs> uh,
2: up in the Porsche Lounge, and it's always a delight when you can speak to someone at the top of their game. There's nothing better than being at the top of your game than being named a brand new
4: World Champion, Kevin Est. That was some race, some season, and some end to the season. Yeah, it was crazy. It was very long season. To be honest, uh, uh, super season, one and a half year. Two times Le Mans, uh, super bring in the middle, no real break. It was it was tough mentally. Um, we had quite a quite a lead after a few races, and then uh, yeah, mentally we always had to think about the championship, not the single race. It was was not easy. Then we had an issue in the after 12 hours in Le Mans, which uh, yeah threw us back, and and then we just had to finish the race to get some points and secure the championship. So. It was a tough season and, and quite uh, delighted to, to have win this. You
2: were in a, a strong position in what was a, I can only describe it as a war in GTE Pro, until that problem with the exhaust of the car. Just take us through those minutes of sitting in the garage, knowing that that car needed to finish to win that
4: world championship. There could be no bigger moment for a driver. Yeah, it was really tough. I was driving and then suddenly I, I heard a, a huge noise in the car, different than normal the people which knows the rsr know how much it's screaming and now it was really loud but really raw strange noise and i had some smell in the car so i was a bit i was really really scared i came in the box and I uh, was really scared that something big was was happening with the car fire or something but then it was only or if you can say the uh, exhaust issue exhaust pipe and uh, the boys changed it quickly but still you're sitting in the car you know uh, 20 minutes in the box and just waiting and hoping that they can send you back out and early enough to get some some big points there uh, and then just drive around for 12 hours which was terrible. Would you
2: rather have been sitting in the car or would you rather have been Michael sitting outside the car and waiting?
4: I think in this moment we are all in the same boat. Sit- I mean, sitting in the car waiting that the guys repair or or just driving around. I mean, just driving around. We were driving but just for nothing for no result just trying to avoid curbs and thinking about the noise and everything I hated this moment to be honest <laughs> I hated the last 12 hours of Le Mans this year but uh, that's part of the game when, you, when you're doing a championship and you, you want to fight for it there's always some races where you just have to survive and that's what we did it's an odd moment isn't it you are the world champion but you're not crowned as the world champion until the end of the year so we're going to be well into the next season before you actually get the trophy yeah, we just we, we got onto the Le Mans podium with a uh, with some golden flowers, and we we're like, we got a trophy, and oh, no, oh no, okay. So uh, it was it was a cool moment to be there on the podium one year after after the victory. But uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a strange feeling because of this Le Mans final. You you have the Le Mans winner, big celebration, se- um, manufacturer celebration, driver championship celebration, and then one day later you go to Nurburgring. So it's not. I wish we could have, you know, yeah, have had a better end um, to, to maybe party a bit more or, or celebrate with the team. We had a good party on Sunday with everybody, which was nice. But now straight to Nurburgring uh, and yeah, the super season finishing in Le Mans is, if you win the race and you win the championship, I believe the party is mega. But if you had a shit race and you, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's special. It's different
2: let's talk a little bit about that battle in gt pro 17 cars not a bad one amongst them every car with at least an opportunity to compete for a podium position we we're right in the thick of that until the problem tell us a little bit about what that was like in the thick of the action which happily the tv cameras followed throughout um, and you were very much in there with that shot
4: yeah it was great i, I did the start and there was a lot of different manufacturers in the first uh, i think five places was four different manufacturers and uh, it's then I, you arrive there and you you kind of feel the strengths and the weakness from everybody. But the lap times were very similar, so you just have to use your strengths to try to overtake and cover. Maybe put some traffic in between you. Uh, and then there was a there was a time in the race where we were four cars ahead of uh, the others, and uh, we were just I think very controlling that moment all the manufacturers and and the drivers just slipstreaming, streaming try not to attack themselves to pull a gap and maybe have an advantage and this is something which you experience almost only gt pro i have to say where the level and everything is so in control that at one it's a big war all the time but sometimes you have to hold up a little bit try to to get away and and make a break and uh, but otherwise the it was it was proper fight we had some some good battles and uh, I'm really glad that, uh, that FIA, ACO, all the manufacturers will work, work well together to have a really good BOP and, and uh, same performance on the cars on, on one lap. Uh, and it was just about small details being consistent, maybe fuel saving more than the other strategy. And there you made the difference, but not on, on pure lap time.
2: And now we move here to a completely different racetrack, a completely different challenge. Some very familiar looking crews. tell us about your mindset moving into this race another great 24-hour race but they they it could not be more
4: different no it is it's it's different we are in Le Mans we are the one of the slowest class or the slowest car let's say we just look in the mirror and overtake the Amca sometimes and then look in the mirror for LMP2 P2, MP1 here we are the fastest car so we never look in the mirror basically we just turn it off and, and uh we just look forward, try to overtake, try not to lose so much time. Weather conditions are always tricky. It was a bit the case in Le Mans last week, but here normally it's, it's worse because the track is longer, you have trees everywhere, you have barbecue, you have smoke, you have Code 60. It's a real different racing, but also flat out all the time. You don't have any safety car. You just, the gap you make, you will keep it. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's different. It's a different car. Everything is different to be honest but it's uh, it's a mega event it's uh, to have these two in in a month is quite tough for everybody uh for the drivers for the the team manager team uh, we drive with Mantai both races so some guys are doing doing the the double uh but the fans are incredible here that what is, what is really cool on this track is having the fans so close to you all the time you can they can come to you anytime they can see look in the garage Uh, and and, uh, they can be really spread out on track which is different to Le Mans and I have to say I like it better
2: It is an extraordinary uh, back-to-back event the guys must be suffering at least some fatigue coming into this what's the plan, whatever happens after this race I presume home and rather a lot of sleep
4: Yeah, we have to uh, prepare the next season (laughs) quite soon uh, after that race but after there's a bit of a there's a bit of a break like uh, maybe one and a half week or two weeks which it will be will be good to go at home and uh, you know relax a little bit t- you know spend time with the family enjoy that tough season but uh, yeah it's the end of the season but we are in the middle of some other season so it's it's not easy yeah uh, and um, yeah try to yeah enjoy the moment I have maybe some holiday uh, I spent just one day between uh, one day home between last race and uh, between Le Mans and, and here and it felt good but it was a bit too short so uh, yeah let's uh, and maybe do a yeah do a, a proper party with, uh, with the people which are, are close to us
2: say one more time as we close good luck for this weekend Kevin Estre world champion well another unique promise of the Nürburgring 24 hours is the well the scale of the driver's briefing. We just had the driver's briefing that's conducted in English, there's another one in German. So, God knows how many drivers we've got in here, but picked out the crowd and making his ring 24 Hours debut. Josh Burden of the KCMG uh, effort. Josh, excited to be for this one?
5: Yeah, I'm super excited. Uh, there's been a lot of build up to this event. Uh, it's been a big season for me, uh, competing in the VLNs. Uh, to get the A permit to even be able to compete here in a GT3. So it's been a long four months, uh, a lot of preparation with the team, and, yeah, this weekend is finally here, and, to be honest, I'm super excited.
2: Now, uh, full GT3 spec, uh, Nissan GTR, Godzilla is here around the ring again. There's three of them here, two of them with uh, your team, Lips, KCMG team. So for those that aren't aware and our listeners, it's not as easy as turning up here, throwing down your entry money, bringing along your gt3 car and putting world-class drivers in you've got to go through quite the process haven't you
5: yeah it's uh it's a it's an extreme process especially uh what makes it worse is the weather that often comes across uh, this place here um you need to compete in at least two vln events in a slow car uh, compete 18 race laps at the moment uh, within a certain sort of time frame for the category. Um, and that in itself is really not so easy with uh, the VLN events being scheduled at the end of winter. We had one race that was snowed out uh, after one lap. We had one that was cancelled because of fog. So, yeah, it's quite a process at the moment. And, um, yeah,
2: definitely not easy to do in a very short time frame. So where did you actually get your lap? So when when was the, when was the kind of lappery completed? I and mean, in what sort of car?
5: So basically i started in a porsche cayman uh did a couple of laps and in the first vlns i didn't really achieve anything because of the cancellations in the race and we had an engine blow up little things like this so i basically received my permit in the last vln race before the call qualif- six hour qualifying race um i started in the porsche cayman and then uh jumped into a bmw and finished off the race so i basically drove for three hours and 52 minutes of the four hour race just to guarantee that it was going to happen so yeah i just drove both cars by myself uh so there wasn't any problems with maybe some teammates making any mistakes it was basically all up to me just to get the points and finish uh, finish to be able to
2: make it this weekend so have you actually yet lapped this track in the gt3 car
5: yeah so i've done probably 20 maximum 25 laps in the gt3 car um every lap around here you learn something different at the stage that uh, i'm at here um before every vln event i did one to two flying laps in the gt3 on the friday which you're allowed to do because the circuit is open um but the first proper hit out i got was in the six hour qualifying race uh, a couple of weeks ago here um I did the top 30 shootout in the car, um, was quite happy with my lap there, we was into P12 in the rain which is not the GTR's strong point, um, so I built a lot of confidence from this in some awkward weather and uh, where I started to feel the most confidence was with my 8 lap stint in the race, I learnt more in that 8 lap stint than I have since I arrived here, So could be a little bit better prepared coming into this weekend, but to be honest, I'm feeling quite good. I've watched a whole of last year's race and most of the year before, and um, I've tried to suck bits of information out of everywhere possible just to prepare myself as much as I can. And to be honest, uh, for me, my one lap speed around here and everything is not really an issue at the moment. I'm lucky to have been quite fast straight away. A lot of it is just having 160 cars on the track and a very big speed difference, so... Just uh, the experience and learning how to tackle this, and just be able to make the most out of not losing too much time in traffic, is where all my focus is.
2: The GTR has got a reputation for being massively fast when BOP allows it to be, but it's also got a reasonably narrow window for that. Just where is it with this? These changes we've seen uh, to the cars for all the GT3 cars here, with the overall power being restricted, is that hurting you guys more than most? Um. It is, yeah, it is hurting us more than most. For sure,
5: the GTR is um, a lot of the time when the BOP is in our favour, uh, we're strong on the streets and a little bit struggling in the slower hairpin sort of corners, and it is a bigger car. Um, BOP for this weekend uh, it's continuously changing they seem to be making minor tweaks to it so to be honest I don't try to get involved too much, I'm just going to drive what we've got but at the moment um, it looks like we'll be able to compete Um, it looks like we've got a fair somewhat BOP for sure nobody's ever going to say it is good for them no matter what manufacturer you are but um, it definitely could have been a little bit easier for us this weekend I feel
2: final question is what the kind of tactics are going to be here if it's not going to be a kind of blinding run to the front is it going to be uh, aiming at that critical lap time and keeping that consistent through whatever this race throws at you
5: yeah so uh, i have some very experienced teammates i'm sure in the car of christian menzel philip Olzac, and also the other first timer here jp Oliveira, who's a really accomplished guy so Uh, Looking at what we need to do for this race, we do have quite a strong package, Um, we are in the pro class, Uh, every pro class is super, super solid here, and um, no such thing as really an endurance race anymore, it's basically going to be a 24 hour sprint race like they all are these days, so... um Yeah, the weather looks fine at this stage although I don't believe it will be something will probably happen but um, we have an average lap time that we're going to stick at uh, fight through the traffic keep our nose clean and uh, hopefully in the last one to two hours we can be somewhere there and
2: I don't see why we shouldn't be somewhere close Josh Burton Uh, as I've said before in these uh, interviews this weekend I'll keep saying it be fast but be safe this place bites have a good race thank you man Well, first familiar face in, well, it's a bonkers paddock here at the Nürburgring 24 Hours, Gary 7, uh, is Michael Lyons. Michael, um, this is not your first time here, but your first time here for the 24 Hours.
6: Yeah, and we're starting it off with something nice and steady in the top class in GT3, so how else would you want to go around here in the dark for the first time? With Conrad Motorsport in the fabulous,
2: sonorous uh, Lamborghini Huracan, and to which specification this is not the evo is it no it is the evo it it's is the, the full evo. evo spec yeah so that's uh, full rich you've got a bit of history with uh, with this team with uh, with franz
6: yeah it's it was an interesting way it all came together it's sort of franz is good friends with fritz gebhardt who obviously i've done a lot of racing with the gebhardt and sort of off the back of that i told fritz that i was looking into doing some vln stuff this year because i've I've done a couple of races in the 235s and the 240s, and I've been itching to get into some full-on GT3 stuff around here. And, yeah, sort of one minute, he said, ah, do you know my friend Franz? And I said, we started talking, and sort of here we are. It's sort of one of those relationships that's just sort of steadily boomed, and we're here for the main race of the big deal. have a proper
2: crack at it. Give us an impression. You've done racing in all sorts of cars and all sorts of circuits of just how different, how challenging this is. Um... The circuit is astonishing. Uh, the garage we're standing at the moment, just to, to let you know, I think has got six cars in this garage. Uh, one GT3 cars from g 4s also a TCR at the back there. Just, in your own words, just how bonkers this place is.
6: Uh, it, it's madness. I mean, I got to do the qualifying race with these guys, which sort of let me settle in quite nicely. And you, When you're in the sort of middle-class cars around here, you the GT3 cars seem to come flying at you, and then but you're sort of able to deal with them quite well you've got the slower cars but you have plenty of time when you're catching the sort of without naming names but like catching the lower class cars or the older cars at the back and then you come here in gt3 and it's like wow you see the guys and you get the experienced guys you catch them they've made a decision on where they're going to be and it's quite easy then you get the inexperienced guys or where they're a little bit hesitant and that's where like you earn your money so to speak you really have to be on it with those guys and sometimes you find yourself making the decision for them and it's Full on. There have been some
2: controversy this year, yeah, coming into this season with some power restrictions for the GT3 cars only, which means that rather oddly, on the dotting of her, some of the lower class cars are faster in a straight line than you are.
6: Yeah, that's made it interesting. it's I understand the theory behind it, I get the, the top speeds are bonkers. I mean, top speed of supercars, hypercars in general at the moment. I do quite a bit of coaching with road cars and stuff. and it's all just gone mad at the moment. So I, I get the logic behind slowing it down. However, it makes our job a lot more full-on, a lot more risky, really, with, with the traffic. Because we've out of the corners, we've got, still got a bit of an advantage. But once we're getting towards terminal velocity, like you say, they're, they're driving away from us. So you're coming into those big braking areas and you can't lose the time by following them for four corners. So you've got to commit. And it's, yeah, it's not going to be easy, over the, especially in the night.
2: Now, this circuit, uh, despite some safety changes uh, fairly recently after the result of a couple of nasty accidents uh, in racing, is still very much as it was. It's still very much the Nordschleifer from 10, 20, 30 years ago. We come here after a 24-hour race last weekend at Le Mans where there have been huge safety changes made. That place was crowded with 61 cars, 62 cars. We've got 160 here. What kind of traffic are you anticipating on a given racing lap?
6: i i can't say i've ever done a clear lap here <laughs> so you, you just know sometimes you can be lucky and you can catch them in some of the high, high speed parts where you can just sort of blow around people but it's it's the committed sections when you catch them going into places like foxhole and sort of like and sometimes because it, like you're going so quick through there in the gt3 car when places like that it yeah they're the places where you think ah oh. Uh, this there goes the lap sort of thing but yeah it's, it's an amazing challenge and the fact that we can still race on proper tracks you know like places like here bathurst monaco they're, they're unreal and that's what keeps you coming back to it amongst the other
2: things that you've been seen out uh, in recent years are historic formula one cars it's not that long ago that those cars were racing right here on the Lifer. can you actually believe we used to do that
6: it's, it's crazy. I kind of, I kind of look at some of the places you, where, the, where you're flying GT3 cars and you think, this is, quite, this is quite edgy, this is quite dangerous, I've got to have my wits about me for this. And then the idea of doing it in a car which is what half the weight, same amount of power, and then, I mean, they're not the safest of things, from the cars from the 70s and the 80s, are they? So, you, yeah, I don't know, part of me says it would be amazing to have a go part of me says when it came down to it and actually like getting the most out of it and everything else being that committed you'd you'd have to have a good talking to yourself wouldn't you even if you did afterwards i think you'd sit down and go as great as that was was that really the best idea i've ever made as a life decision (laughs) sort of thing i think that's where you'd end up after qualifying if you were driving something around here like that around here
2: so here's the question fabulous new spec gt3 car here classic formula
6: one car Group C sports car. What's your choice? That's not fair. <laughs> just, just oh, it's very fair. So, uh, I can't imagine a Group C car you could get to work at like the ride heights around here. I think, i genuinely, think the GT3 cars are—it's the right class to be the fastest thing around this circuit because anything with more downforce, you're going to be so compromised over the bumps. As amazing as it is seeing the laps from like the the VW and the Porsche they're going incredibly fast and to commit to do that that's those speeds in some of the sections is amazing to see but, but with no traffic remember yeah with no traffic and also imagine if they were like there was like three or four of those cars in a train it would be a nightmare it would be so much hard work whereas with these you can still have a proper scrap you have a reasonable amount of braking distance and you can battle you know like even in gt3 at that pace you're sort of there's only certain parts on the, on the long circuit where you can really sort of think about going side by side with each other. If we were in prototypes, I think you'd lose that bit of drama, that, bit of, that last little bit of racing, I think. It'd still be an amazing spectacle, but I think that you wouldn't get those same fights. Well, the
2: one thing you're going to get from uh, the GT3 experience of the Nürburgring 24-hour visit, anything like the last dozen or so that I've witnessed here on site, is should your career, your life, take a different change in the future? You'd have had real-life experience of what a police chase is really like.
6: <laughs> oh, it's funny you say it like that, because it, whenever people talk to me about this circuit and everything else, it's like, how do you relate it or anything like that? And it it is it brings it back to, like, you're going to, down through country lanes there's no, there's no run off, there's no margin and you've just got to be so on top of it you've got to be so on your game and that's, that's what I'm sure brings everyone back I mean I've been here just doing a few VLNs and stuff and that's what made me really push to get this opportunity
2: Great stuff, Michael Lyons I'll say to you what I say to every single player here every single year, be fast, be safe,
6: enjoy it Thanks Graham, great to speak to you
2: Uh, Stefan Wendel from Mercedes AMG. It's another page, another chapter in the GT history for a great brand. Tell us what this new car is bringing to the party.
7: Oh, I'm so excited uh, to tell you about. So it's first of all a brand new looking car, and as Tobias said, um, it it, it shows some indications of a new design uh, for AMG road legal cars in the future. Um, But. Moreover, we thought along, so let, let's say about two years, uh, what we can do, when we will do, when is the right time to, to update our existing very successful car. And so in, 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 uh, in the sphere we are working around, uh, it's all about um, to, to update things which are not influencing the BOP so far. Because it makes no sense to update something which will hurt you later on with more weight or smaller restrictors or whatever because we know that we have enough potential in our existing car, but still we have some tiny things to do. Uh, and so we, we collected feedback from our teams from uh, all around the world. And uh, yeah, each team had something different and, and all those together we, we thought about, okay, what we can bring in the car without raising the cost or maybe reducing the cost. Because there are two different things on one. On one side we want to reduce the running cost for the teams later on, On the other hand, we don't want to make the update kit too expensive, because for sure we would have some things more to do, but uh, which would be too expensive to put in the car to make it exchangeable. So, yeah.
2: So give us an impression with SLS uh, chapter one, chapter two is AMG GT3, the numbers that we're talking about there for AMG GT3 leading to this point.
7: How many cars? The numbers, uh, the the cars sold? Yes. Okay, from the SLS we sold 86 cars. And from the actual GT3, we sold over 130 cars. And yeah, now it's a new era, uh, so we will have some years to go with this one. And uh, we hope we can also sell them, so that they will like it.
2: So the highlights, if, uh, if we're going to give you the, what we call the elevator pitch for this car, what are the big changes that you think will change the minds of customers and keep them with Mercedes-AMG or bring them to Mercedes-AMG with this new <clears throat> 2020
7: car? Yeah, first of all, we want to keep all our strengths we already had. So, because we were not so bad so far. And then we want to even improve more the uh, the durability functions we have. Let's say uh, things in the, in the radio system, radiator system we had, which uh, sometimes hurt us at the end of 24-hour races due to dirt and pickup and all those things. And to make... Uh, the front package, the air filter, and all those small things uh, easier accessible, easier to work for the mechanics, and at the end also cheaper and running costs. And going with with uh, optimizations of the traction control, the new ABS system, which is uh, capable to to give more, or was capable to to be adjustable, better driving style, different driving style, different drivers. So yeah, this will help, and then also increasing the running costs of the engine.
2: I wouldn't uh, expect.
7: Sorry increasing the mileage of the engine and (laughs) decreasing the running cost. Sorry.
2: No problem. So it's a new for 2020 car. There's a history of seeing these cars a little earlier. When will we first see this car racing in anger?
7: So you will see it quite soon uh, as a prototype. So we search for championships where we are able to run it, uh, maybe without um, being in uh, in, in classification. But uh, we plan, and this is our process now with FIA, to be homologated from 1st January onwards. So So this
2: car... Potentially
7: here at VLN, maybe? It will for sure be at one or two VLN races because the notch life is one of our key test tracks and we need to test it under race conditions. But officially in customer hands and homologated, uh, it will be from the 1st January onwards. So we hope to see it then in Dubai and Daytona. Excellent stuff.
2: Beyond that, this is clearly not the end of the story from Mercedes-AMG. You've got the new GT4 from last season. Any plans to extend that range any further?
7: we always um, open-eyed. Around and uh, also in, in, in a tight dialogue with SO and uh, all the organizations around the world. And um, so, so uh, we will see what's coming up. At the moment, this is the one we are fully focused on, uh, and then we go ahead.
0: And that was inside the sports car paddock for the week of June 24th. Definite big thanks to all of our guests. We'll have a couple of follow-up podcast goodies here. Graham sat down with the amazing, truly amazing, Jim Glickenhaus for 20, 25 minutes at the Nürburgring, so we'll spin that out into a separate episode of its own. He also spoke with the winners, the overall winners of the ring, including Kevin Estrus, so I get to hear from him again, and I'll drop that into another podcast of its own. All right, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt podcast on our Inside the Sports Car Show, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, thank you for listening.